Welcome to you. What a privilege and honor it is to be able to worship God here, to commune with Christ. Singing has been wonderful. Appreciate the prayer very much this morning, and now excited to be able to study God's Word with you for a little while. And sometimes, uh, as a speaker, you try to select uh, subjects that relate to current events that are fresh on people's minds, and I could not resist, in light of the uh, heavy rainfall and flooding, taking this opportunity to preach on the Genesis global flood of Noah. And obviously, the flood holds a special place in Scripture. Uh, It's very prominent uh, in the Bible. In fact, for the first 11 chapters of the Bible, the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, are devoted to it. Next to creation, it's the greatest single physical event in the history of the earth. Nothing comparable has occurred since, nor will occur, until the ultimate final destruction of the earth when the Lord returns. And so as we are stuck... There we go. I have a lot of pictures this morning, so I need this to work. This would be really bad if it did not work. There are many references to the flood throughout the Bible, and so the, the, the credibility of the Bible are at stake. If the Genesis global flood of Noah did not occur, if this was not a global event that actually happened, then the, the entire Bible is at stake. Not only the first book of the Bible, but all the books that follow. Several of the Old Testament writers and Old Testament books refer to the global flood of Noah. The New Testament writers frequently allude to and refer to uh, the Genesis account of the global flood of Noah. In fact, doctrinal arguments are made. We're going to see some of those. Peter writes a lot about the flood and talks about baptism and connects that back to Noah's flood. So a lot of doctrinal arguments are contingent or predicated or tied back to the global flood of Noah. Jesus himself refers to the global flood of Noah. And so the credibility of the Old Testament writers, the New Testament writers, Jesus Christ is at stake whether or not this event actually transpired, actually occurred. And yet it would be difficult to find an account in the Bible that's more ridiculed or mocked more than the global flood of Noah. But these attacks were not always so prevalent. In fact, for centuries, scientists and theologians attributed many of Earth's features that we observe in nature to this catastrophic event, to the global flood of Noah. It was relatively recently with macroevolution in macroevolutionary geology in the last couple hundred years that some of these uh, attitudes began to change and the global flood of Noah became, came under greater and greater scrutiny. Many Christians have even adopted this idea trying to reconcile evolutionary geology with the global flood of Noah in the Genesis account by saying that it was a local flood, it was a regional flood, or it was just a mythical event to teach truth obviously with no regard to what Scriptures clearly teach and affirm. And so, in the first half of our study this morning, I want to spend some time looking at evidence that proves this was an actual historical event, that the global flood of Noah actually happened. And in the second half, we're going to look at lessons we can learn from it. What are the takeaways for us as Christians? And so, as we look at the evidence for this global flood, I think so many of uh, the, the debate, the controversy relates to the age of the earth. Talked about macroevolutionary geology, which requires millions, not billions of years between each of those layers in, in, uh, in, in the earth versus a relatively young earth, six to 10,000 years, if you believe in the biblical account, biblical genealogies, 
make it very clear that the earth is roughly six to 10,000 years old. So that's a lot of the controversy is how old is the earth? And we can look at many examples that indicate that I believe help prove that the earth is relatively young, six to 10,000 years old. Uh, comets, which have a lifespan, um, the amount of hydrogen in the universe, which converts to helium. If the universe was billions of years old, all the hydrogen should already have converted to helium. The vast amounts of hydrogen would indicate a relatively young earth. The lunar recession rate, uh, the moon gradually gets farther and farther away from uh, the earth. And so you look at that, that's a, if you look at the, the rates stayed the same, that would indicate a relatively young earth. So there's many examples uh, that we could look at that prove the earth is six to 10,000 years old. Uh, earth's decaying magnetic field, if that rate's been the same. If you look at that rate, the earth would be roughly six to 10,000 years old. But I want to just mention briefly uh, one that relates specifically uh, cl- more closely to this Genesis flood of Noah, human population growth statistics, which I believe are one of the most powerful arguments in support of a relatively young earth. According to human population growth statistics, the human population doubles roughly every 35 years. And so let's say uh, we started with two people, and for the sake of argument, let's call them Adam and Eve. And let's say that man has been around for one million years. Now, that's very conservative. We're being conservative with our numbers, not to cheat our numbers. Evolutionists currently believe that man arrived on scene after macroevolution occurred roughly two to three million years. So there'd be a lot more people if they've been around for two to three million, but let's just say one million years, allowing for... Uh, wars, pestilence, disease that wipe out vast amounts of people. Each generation was 40 years. Let's say each family had 2.4 children. We know that that was a lot larger in, in the past especially, but to be conservative with our numbers. The amount of people you would have 1 million years later, according to human growth statistics, 1 times 10 to the 5,000th power. Now that's a problem because the universe itself, not the earth, Talk about fitting that amount of people on the earth. The universe at 93 billion light years in diameter could only contain one times 10 to the hundredth power. Not 5,000th power, hundredth power of people. But if you started with eight people post-flood in the biblical timeline, according to human growth population statistics, you would have approximately six to eight billion people today. Exactly what we find. We have historical evidence the flood occurred. You know, if, if this event happened and, and eight people survived it and witnessed it, you would expect that made an impression. You're going to be talking about that. And as Noah's family began to repopulate the earth and spread upon the earth, they would have take, taken stories, remembrances of that event and passed it down to each generation. Now, obviously, over time, it's like the telephone game. Some of the th- details were, were lost or embellished in some of those accounts. It's like a fish story becomes embellished over time. There are roughly 200 to 500 flood legends throughout the world and basically every continent but Antarctica, for obvious reasons, all have some remembrance of this global flood. We talked about how some of the details maybe got changed and some of them over time, but notice some of the things that are consistent. 95% of these flood legends, it was global. Not regional, not local, it was a global event. 88% a certain family was favored. 70% survival was by means of a boat. 67% animals were saved. 66% the flood was due to man's wickedness. We see here a chart depicting just a few of the flood legends in various countries uh, across the planet. And you see here the Genesis account, some of the details in the Genesis account. Full representation 
or at least a partial representation of many of those events. In fact, even the name Noah, when you look at some of the flood legends, the Hawaiian flood legend, uh, the, the man that was saved in that story was named Nu'u. The Hindu flood legend, the man was, the name was Manu. And those names are very similar when you look at them to the name Noah. found it interesting in one of the flood legends, the man that was saved was named Dumb. Uh, evidently, he turned out a lot smarter and wiser than his parents thought he would. But we see here uh, the historical uh, account, uh, you know, before globalization, before social media and Facebook, how do we account for all these civilizations throughout his, human history, independent of each other across the globe, all talking about a global flood? We also have physical evidence that we would expect to find if this catastrophic event occurred. The Genesis account says all the mountains were covered. That's not talking about a local flood. If all the mountains are covered, it's a global event. Fifteen cubits. It's interesting, a large cargo ship, like the ark would have been, has to essentially settle in the water 50% to not capsize. So 15 cubits above the mountains would ensure that it didn't hit anything. Every living creature was destroyed. That's a universal event. That's not a local event, not a regional event. Critics will also sometimes claim, well, how could that boat have been big enough to contain all those animals? That just seems silly. There's no way. When somebody brings up that objection, respond, have you, do you know how big Noah's Ark was? I think some here have, have traveled to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky where they tried to make a full-scale replica of Noah's Ark. 450 feet long, one and a half football fields long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall, three levels, 100,000 square feet of space, the equivalent of eight freight trains, Eight freight trains, 65 cars each, 520 cars total. So it was a humongous vessel. I've seen videos and pictures of the Ark Encounter. It's it's incredibly impressive. And also consider the fact that Noah would have not had to take every different variation of those animals. He could have taken the broad kinds, categories of animals, and then breeding Adaptation, microevolution, not macro, not changing from a cow to a pig, but variation, adaptation within those different kinds could have occurred post-flood. He also could have taken animals in their infancy or in a less developed state requiring less food and taking up less space. You know, it's interesting, in Matthew 24, when Jesus talks about the flood, the word he uses for flood is the Greek word cataclysmos, where we get the uh, word cataclysmic. Peter in 2 Peter 3 talks about and compares it to the, the, the final judgment at the Lord's return. That's not a local event. That's not a regional event. That's a universal event. The Bible is very clear. And we have abundant evidence all around us, even under our feet, that prove this event actually occurred. This was not just a lot of water. Uh, this was a geological event. The fountains of the deep, we read, were broken up. The psalmist in Psalm 104 talks about how the mountains were formed during this event. A lot of geological activity. Uh, you know, there's a, I, I, I uh, listened to a presentation, the man that made uh, some interesting uh, points about how he believed that many meteors, maybe 57% of the meteors that have hit the earth, hit the earth during the year of the flood. So when you think about the fountains of the deep breaking up and some of the geological activity that could have initiated some of the things that happened in the flood, the meteors hitting the earth could have obviously played a large role in that. Our planet is the only planet that looks like a cracked egg. And we know that a lot of geological activity occurs where? Where plates meet. 
You have subduction where plates will sometimes dive under other plates. You have plates that will pull apart and magma will come in the gaps. You'll have plates that will crash together in mountains form. Now today, at today's rate, very slowly. Very slowly. But during the flood, this catastrophic conditions, plates hitting during the flood, those mountains could have formed rather rapidly. And so we can look at geological evidence in support of the flood in the Grand Canyon. We can look at the Paladero Canyon, second largest canyon on our own backyard. Uh, Macroevolutionists, though, will argue that uh, the Grand Canyon was formed by the Colorado River, which is lower in elevation than the Grand Canyon. It was going uphill. It's the ultimate little engine that could. Paladero Canyon was said to, by macroevolutionists to be formed by the Prairie Dog Town Fork of the Red River. And if you've ever seen the Prairie Dog Town Fork of the Red River, even recently, with all the rain, we drove by it a few days ago. You can see how... <laughs> And probable that that carved out Paladero Canyon is. It's more likely that these canyons were formed rapidly by lots of water under, below, and above the surface. In fact, uh, when you look at, again, this controversy, so much of it, like everything, seemingly relates to our worldview. How we interpret the evidence. See here a chart depicting different worldviews. Uh, Catastrophism. Obviously, they don't have a very high opinion of catastrophism. Catastrophic events that were once believed responsible for mass extinction and the formation of all landforms. Once believed. I still currently believe that many of Earth's features uh, were formed, were affected under catastrophic conditions. Gradualism, which is this idea that canyons were carved out by rivers, show gradual change. Gradualism is the idea that changes on Earth occurred by small steps over long periods of time. Uniformitarianism, very similar, that says essentially that all these rates have stayed the same, have stayed constant, nothing's changed. That they couldn't have been accelerated or changed under catastrophic conditions. And yet we see coal formation, petrification, oil, canyons. Many of these processes can and have been accelerated significantly under catastrophic conditions. In fact, a great example of that, some of you may have been alive and remember the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Canyon was formed. During that event, new layers or strata were laid down, some 6,000 feet. And if you look at the rate that those layers were laid down and you applied into the Grand Canyon, the 5,700 feet could have occurred in 57 years, much more rapidly than millions of years. Engineers Canyon from Mount St. Helens eruption has a river going through it. And yet we know that that canyon was not carved by that river. It was carved by... Uh, lots of water. I want to talk about the geologic column. You might remember this from science class where these different layers represent millions of years. Precambrian, Cambrian, Jurassic, Triassic, uh, Mississippian, Pennsylvanian. All these layers represent were formed very gradually over millions and millions of years. And yet what's interesting, what they don't tell you is you will not find that column in its completed form anywhere in the world. They'll say the Grand Canyon supposedly is one of the best examples of that column anywhere in the world. And here are all the layers that are missing in the Grand Canyon. (laughs) You know, it's interesting if you look at uh, the sedimentary rock, water-laid rock that fossils are found in, you only find those fossils 15 to to 30 feet deep. And yet if the geological column is true, and that timeline is true of millions and millions of years, it should extend 130 miles thick, deep. And yet the earth's crust itself only extends 25 to 35 miles 
deep. Another interesting, we look at the Cambrian layer. That's one of the earliest layers. They'll say, uh, we would say during the flood, one of the first layers that were laid down during the flood event, you have what's known as the Cambrian explosion, which has been a significant problem for macroevolutionists. Charles Darwin himself admitted this was a serious problem for his theory. Richard Dawkins, a very outspoken militant atheist, in talking about this Cambrian explosion, about how these life forms suddenly explode in that Cambrian layer with seemingly no evolutionary ancestry. You have these complex creatures. Now, evolution would say you have simple to complex, very gradually over time, and yet you see this explosion from nowhere of not simple organisms, complex organisms, with no evolutionary history, ancestry leading to them. How do we account for that? He said it's as though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history. Needless to say, this appearance of sudden planting of life without any evolutionary history, has delighted creationists. It certainly has. Another man admits the Cambrian explosion was the most remarkable and puzzling event in the history of the life, not to us. Another atheistic evolutionist says, if I take the Cambrian explosion on its own, the logical conclusion I would draw is, wow, it was created. And so essentially what you have is in that Cambrian layer, you have this explosion of life forms all at once. Complex life forms, no evolutionary history. And that's exactly what we would expect if a flood occurred, where all of a sudden you have this explosion of fossils that occurred during the global flood of Noah. And what's interesting, you find this line at the base layer of the Cambrian layer that curiously stretches across the entire planet known as the Great Unconformity. Coal beds are not being formed today. That's, I believe, evidence. You know, evolutionists will say those coal... Uh, coal was formed very slowly, the, the marriage between Mother Nature and Father Time, given enough time, and marshy, swap, marshy swaplands, uh, eventually coal formed. We would believe that the mud and rocks and water and all that weight with vegetation would have formed coal very rapidly during the flood event. Polystrate fossils, I believe, very powerful testimony for a young earth and for the Genesis global flood of Noah. Poly, multiple, straight, strata. So we find fossils in multiple layers. Now, how do we account for that? If each layer was laid over millions of years, how do you get fossils in multiple layers? How do you get a tree in multiple layers? Somehow, that tree had its roots or the base of that tree buried, and then over millions of years it was eventually covered, but it didn't decompose during those millions of years. How do we account for that? Vast fossil graveyards, we've talked about those in studying dinosaurs, that we find dinosaur graveyards all over the world. In fact, you'll go to those uh, places, those monuments or whatever, and, and they'll admit these dinosaurs, this graveyard obviously was due to some flood, but they're quick to point out it was a local flood. It was a regional flood. It was a flash flood. And yet we find vast fossil graveyards all over the world where these fossils were preserved uh, during uh, this event with mud and lots of water. You see here a picture of a fish caught uh, and it's eating its last meal. Another a picture here, a marine fossil giving birth at the moment of its burial. Marine fossils are found on the tops of mountains, uh, including the Himalayas, 20,000 feet above sea level. How do we account for that? Sediment layers that are found, like uh, sandstone and limestone from the Grand Canyon that goes across the U.S. into Canada, across the Atlantic, into England. <laughs> How do we account for that? Rapid or no erosion between the, the layers, the strata. So think about a good illustration I heard. Think about a cake, a multi-layered cake. If you 
took that cake and you put it outside, within a few hours or a few days, there's going to be rapid erosion. It's going to be rough between those layers. Wind erosion, water erosion recently here. Scavengers. How do we explain that many of these layers, the strata, are smooth with no evidence of erosion? How do we account for that? And so we could look at a multitude, abundant amount of evidence, historical and physical, that prove this event actually occurred. But what does it mean for us? What are the takeaways? You know, this can't just be interesting information. There's got to be implementation. Talk about that a lot. Love apologetics. Love it. I think it's really important that we own our faith and that we're convicted and we're committed and we know that these things actually occurred. And our young people know these aren't fairy tales. These aren't stories. They're biblical accounts. And they actually happened. But it's meaningless it doesn't, if it doesn't mean anything to us, if it doesn't do anything to us. And so what are the lessons we learned from the flood? You know, I think when we look at the lessons, the takeaways from this event, I think just like any of the events we find recorded in the Bible, we learn a lot about the character of God. We see so many of God's qualities manifested during this event. Second Peter 3, Peter writes a lot about the flood. He talks about how he's, he's long-suffering, willing to suffer a long time, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Notice the word any and all. And I think sometimes we struggle, I struggle with feeling you know, like God's this impersonal force just ready to zap us for any indiscretion. And the truth is, as we, we sing, He's for us, not against us. And He's gone great lengths to rescue us from His own wrath through His Son. We see God's patience, long-suffering. Over he gave them 120 years, this probationary period in the preaching of Noah, to repent. Even though they were completely wicked, He waited and waited and waited. And that's convicting in terms of how we ought to treat Others, the way God's dealt with and treated us. You know, God gave them 120 years. I won't give others. I won't give my children 120 seconds sometimes. And that's very convicting. We see here, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He preached during this 120 years. We see God's plan was communicated through His Word, contrary to the tenets of Calvinism. He saved the ancient world through the... He sought to save the ancient world through the preaching of Noah, not by direct operation of the Holy Spirit, separate and apart from the Word of God. He did it through preaching over a hundred years. And yet, only eight people responded to that preaching. And I think there's a lesson in that. We plant, we water, God gives the increase. Now, certainly, I believe a lot of times there is a correlation. A lot of times we're not getting the fruit, the results, the increase that God gives because we're not planting the seed, we're not watering the seed. And so, it's often a numbers game in the terms of the more opportunities we seek and take advantage of, the more results we'll see. But that's not always the case. And if it's just about numbers, not the number of, I think the true number is how many opportunities did we take and make. But if it's all about the, the results, the numbers, then by that criteria we could say Jonah was the greatest preacher in the history of the world and Noah was the worst. <laughs> Over 120 years, eight people. God gives the increase. And we see here another lesson in this, Noah saved his own. That's very admirable. He got his family on the ark. You know, we look at a lot of the heroes of faith that did great things for God's kingdom and other people, and they lost their children. Noah saved his own. 1 Peter 3, uh, another interesting text here. I had a classmate in high school actually ask me about this. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, 
by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was up preparing, wherein few that his eight souls were saved by water. And he asked, so when Jesus died, was in the tomb, in the Sidian realm, he went and preached to those who died during the flood. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you look at uh, Scripture that clearly uh, teaches that you get one life, one chance, and there's no opportunity to rich man Lazarus to repent after you die. What would be the point of Jesus going to these people in Hades and preaching to them when they can't repent, they can't respond to it? What would he have said to them? So we look at it, why are they spirits in prison? When did he preach to them in the days of Noah? Through the Spirit-inspired preaching of Noah, Jesus preached to those people in that sense. Through the preaching of Noah, why are they said to be in prison? Because they had died. And now as Peter writes this, they're in Hades awaiting final judgment and sentencing. Peter writes also in 2 Peter 3 about scoffers walking after their own lust. That's the agenda. We mock, we scoff these stories, Scripture, truth. God, Christianity, because we want to walk after our own lust and saying, where's the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Uniformitarianism. It's not new. Everything has stayed exactly... And, and uh, Peter says, things have changed. There's been a flood. For this, they are willingly, willingly are ignorant of. You know, a lot of times I'm not willingly ignorant, I'm just ignorant. It's unintentional, but I think sometimes we can also recognize and admit there are times we choose to be ignorant of the truth. We choose to be ignorant of facts. We choose to be dumb. They are willingly ignorant that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed or flooded with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved in the fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Attitudes haven't changed. Conditions haven't changed much since Noah's day. They scoff, they mock, they laugh because they want to walk after their own lust. Choosing to be ignorant. I love the, the passage in Exodus 34 where God gives a description of Himself. You want to study God's character, who God is? See, God from... His own characterization of Himself, He passes by Moses and says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, there's that word again, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And here's the balance. Will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children of the third and the fourth generation. And this summarizes that first lesson and leads us into the second we see and we learn that God takes sin very seriously. And unfortunately, the portrait painted of God in the 21st century leaves the impression that God's long-suffering and His patience is permanent. God's justice and wrath and righteousness and holiness are ignored or minimized while His mercy and grace and love are perverted into eternal patience. Paul writes in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, walking after their own lust, Peter wrote. We see here in this event, sin's always a big deal. It's, and yet we mock it, we downplay it, we lower the bar, we laugh about it at the water cooler. And yet we see here it's not funny. 
We see when we look at the mountains, when we look at the flood and earth's features, that should remind us of how God views sin. The ultimate illustration of that is the cross of His Son where He took upon Him all the destruction of the world. The problem is we mock, we scoff, we laugh, we make light of it. Nothing's holy. Nothing's sacred anymore. Everything's profane. Everything's common. And often those who are most in need of repentance are the least concerned about it. We see that in the flood. So we learn another lesson. Judgment is imminent. Judgment is coming. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, 10-14, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Here's the takeaway. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? In all holy conversation and godliness in the way that you live your life, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we according to His promise look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, here's the conclusion, therefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent, that you may be found of Him in peace without spot and blameless. God's long-suffering with the sinner is not eternal. The party eventually ends. It ended in the days of Noah... It ended in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it will eventually end for the unfaithful when the Lord returns. The ungodly learned this lesson the hard way in Noah's day. Jesus writing about this in the context of the destruction of Jerusalem. We've studied that previously. We don't want to ignore the context. But I'll leave this concept of watching and waiting and being ready applies for us as we wait His ultimate return and judgment. But as the days of Noah were, so also the coming of the Son of Man will be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 44, Therefore, here's the conclusion, be you also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. God's long-suffering with the sinner eventually runs out. It eventually ends. We see here in Noah's day, we see the, the distraction. Conditions haven't changed much. They were distracted. They were worldly. They were carnal. They were selfish. They were indulgent. And they were lost. So we learn the importance of following God's blueprint of salvation. Trust and obey. Genesis 6, there's no greater epitaph that could be put on your tombstone. Thus did Noah according to some... According to all that God commanded him, so did he. Noah was not partially obedient. Noah was not partially submissive. He was fully compliant, fully committed, fully convicted. People cry legalism. And if you're trying to obey God with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength, and all of your imperfection, not that we're perfect in that, but if you're trying to obey God and be fully compliant to the best of your abilities, the right spirit and motive, if that's legalism, you know where the legalists were? On the ark. You know where the illegalists were? Not on the ark. And I think again, attitudes haven't changed very much today. Many within Christendom would say if they were living in those days, I'll get on that ark, but I've got terms and conditions. I'm not going to live for over a year with all those stinky animals with the skunks. The layout of the ark needs to be suited to fit my liking. There needs to be more natural lighting. There needs to be more windows. 
What we learn is God doesn't accept red lines. If Noah had started altering the ark, it would have been like all the other flotation devices that didn't float, that didn't save. And when men start altering the organization, the name, the worship, the doctrine, the plan of salvation of the church of Christ, it ceases to be the church belonging of Christ, and it becomes something else. I want to tell you this morning, that boat won't float. Hebrews 11, verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, preparing an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteous, which is by faith. We see this pattern throughout Scripture and throughout, certainly, Hebrews 11. Grace, faith, obedience, salvation. Grace and faith. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Salvation was made possible by grace. He was saved by grace through faith. Did his faith response to do all that God commanded him to build the ark according to God's instruction nullify his faith? No. Did it nullify God's grace? No. It's the very thing that brought them together and resulted in the salvation of Noah and his family. All the faith in the world, if we define faith, which the Bible does, and if we define faith as mental assent only, mental acknowledgement only, devils believe there's no faith response if there's no works, James chapter 2. All that faith in the world, if Noah had said, I believe it's going to rain, but I'm not going to build a boat, would not have saved Noah. One thing did not save Noah and his family, neither were they saved by a grace that didn't require anything of them. You know, it's interesting, if you look at the dimensions of the ark, they've actually used the dimensions of the ark to, to, to model and, and make large cargo ships. Now, not necessarily designed for speed, but for transporting a lot of weight, that's exactly what the ark in, in, in choppy water, in turbulent conditions. They've taken those dimensions, put them in a washing machine, it won't tip over. Estimated to withstand waves as high as 98 feet tall. And here's the point, God knows what He's doing. God knows what He's making. He doesn't need our red lines. And if we really trust God, if we really believe God, if we're going to do exactly what God said. Another lesson we learn. You can't follow God's blueprint if you, know, if you don't know what that blueprint is. How many animals did Noah take on the ark? We sing the songs. I don't, nothing wrong with the songs. But a lot of times we've made this about toys and pictures and songs, and we kind of lose sight of how... This was the deadliest day in the history of the world. It was terrible. How many animals did Noah take on the ark? Two, two by two. Truth is, partially true, took seven pairs of clean animals. I was studying with a man uh, one time, and, and we were going through uh, this event, learning the lessons from the flood, and we talked about that, and this was super eye-opening to him. It was, wasn't doctrinally significant by any means, but it impressed upon him, I can't believe everything I've been fed, everything I've been told, my, I've got to check it myself. And so we see again this concept, God's grace, God's word, our faith response and obedience resulting in God's blessing. We see that. Noah found grace. He made an ark by faith. He prepared an ark according to all that God commanded. The result was salvation. We see when God was judging His people and they were being bitten by venomous snakes and He had this plan that you have to make and lift up this bronze serpent and look at it. The fact that they had, was that snake salvation? Trying to earn their salvation. The receiving of the promised land, if you look at the word give, and talking about a gift of God, probably the most frequent reference is to the promised land that God gave His people. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. They didn't pay for it. They deserved to be in the wilderness, and yet God gave it to them. I have given into thine hand Jericho, and they still had to do 
something to take possession of that gift. They had to march around the walls. They had to blow trumpets and shout. And the walls came tumbling down. They had to do something. They had to exert a lot of effort to take possession of that gift. The gift is still a gift, even if it comes with terms and conditions that have to be met to receive that gift. Naaman the leper, whenever he quit being stubborn and finally submitted to God, he was cleansed not a moment before. He was washed. The Great Commission, the grace of God, Titus 2, has, come, has appeared to all men, teaching us that just as I am is how I can stay. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldliness, we should live soberly and righteously. Gospel is preached. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And this leads into our final lesson. The ark uh, is a shadow of the church of Christ. You have to get in that ark, into the church, to receive salvation. I want to tell you that's not a popular teaching today, and it wasn't a popular teaching in Noah's day. Evidently, <laughs> only popular with eight people. And if we could take the same attitudes today, transport them back to Noah's day, couldn't God save people without the ark? That Noah's preaching boat salvation, trying to earn salvation through works. He's limiting the power of God. That's very judgmental and intolerant and bigoted and hateful and exclusive to teach you have to be on that boat to be saved. Why do I have to be in the ark of the church to be saved? I'm a good moral person. I don't need organized religion. Doesn't Noah know that all paths lead to the same place? And those attitudes and comments reflect an ignorance of the value of Christ and His church. And the blood that purchased that church that we could be here before God without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing, and be holy without blemish in Christ alone. 1 Peter 3, we saw that in the days of Noah, the ark was prepared. Eight souls were saved by what? By water. And then Peter says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh. It's not washing skin, but sin. Spiritual. And people cry, water salvation. You believe in baptismal regeneration. Overreaction during the Reformation movement to the Catholic corruption or perversion of baptism by the blood of Christ. They had come up with a doctrine that basically taught that there was some kind of mystical, magical power in the water. And so they overreacted in the Reformation, protesting that to come up with a plan that basically said you don't have to be baptized to be saved at all. Saved by water. That seems odd to a lot of people. How was Noah and his family saved by water? Where were they saved from? A world of sin. And water separated and destroyed that old life, that old world. It changed it, resurrected them, raised them in the newness of life. And Peter said that's the same way we're saved today. Through, by water. The Greek word dia means essentially via. The agency, the medium, the circumstances one finds themselves in because of something that's affected. Saved by what medium agency? The water. The blood of Christ. The water was a medium that God used to separate the damned from the saved in Noah's day. And it's the dividing line between the saved and the lost today. That same water that destroyed the wicked, the old life, the old man of sin for us today was the means of saving Noah and his family from that generation. It was the dividing line. It delivered them from corruption and delivered them into a redeemed relationship with the Lord. And Peter said the water which saved Noah was a type of baptism that now saves us today. The water bore up the ark. It was the means of floating that boat and bearing them harmless. 
God affected their salvation, the new circumstances they found themselves in, through what? Through water. The water isn't the salvation, but it's the means, the agency, the medium by which God brings about that salvation, grace through faith. Just like with Naaman the leper. By, is that word again? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that term powerfully impresses upon us the essentiality of baptism. People will cry, we're not saved by what we do, we're saved by what He did. And that's true. That's the gospel truth. But when do we access the benefits of what He did for us? How are we saved? Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus when we're baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's all about faith. Colossians 2, faith in the operation of God. It's not a work we do, it's an operation God does in the blood of His Son. In fact, you can't do that. It's done to you. You're submissive in that. What are, what are you earning? What are you deserving? It's saying, I have so much faith in the power of God and the salvation, the gospel. So much faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that I'm going to join Him in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Paul writes in Titus 3, Not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He hath saved us. By what? The washing of regeneration? Reference to baptism. So if we're not saved by works of righteousness, which we do, but works of merit to earn our salvation, but we are saved by a washing of regeneration, just like Peter taught, just like Jesus taught, then evidently the washing of regeneration, baptism, is not a work of righteousness, which we do. Paul writes, Know you not that so many of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized in His death. When do we get into the death of Christ? That's where the blood was shed. Say by the blood of Christ, when do we get into the death where the blood was shed? When do we get into Christ when we're baptized into Christ? <laughs> the meaning is clear if we don't let biases obscure the clear meaning. The word into, the Greek word ice, the sphere, the import, the relationship, the realm that an individual enters through immersion. And so as Peter preaches in Acts 2, the birthday of the church, and they're basically asking, how do we get into that ark of safety? How do we get into the church? What must I do to be saved? Notice Peter didn't say what many preachers today would have said. What are you talking about? What must I do? You don't do anything. You're trying to earn your salvation. What must, essential, I, personal responsibility, do? You got to do something to be saved. What did he tell them? He commanded them to do something. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. That means our sins do not go into remission until we what? Believe, repent, and are baptized. And God added to the church those who are being saved. They entered the church by obeying the gospel and baptism. God put water between life and death, between thirst and satisfaction, between filth and and cleanliness, between sin and life, we see that in the flood, between bondage and freedom at the Red Sea, between sin and sanctification, priesthood had to wash in the laver before they entered into the tabernacle. Romans 6, between sickness and health, we see that name in the leper, blindness and sight, John chapter 9, and God has placed water between sin and salvation. And what was the first thing they did post-flood? They departed from the ark. What did they do? They worshipped. And that's what redeemed people do. They appreciate their salvation. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we should be here this morning. 
That's why we worship. And God, we're told, put a rainbow in the clouds. Put a rainbow in the clouds as a sign of His covenant faithfulness. And I want to tell you, that rainbow does not represent sin and pride and parades and LGBTQ, XYZ, LMNOP. And if the people who are waving that flag really understood what it means and really embraced what it means, they would find true peace and joy and love and salvation. And if you need to embrace what that rainbow symbolizes, the need to be in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you have an opportunity to respond to it this morning. Don't wait till it's too late. We see the sense of urgency in this event. Don't wait till the door is slammed shut to the ark and it's too late. Believe, repent, be baptized into Christ this morning. Best decision you'll ever make. And enter into a covenant relationship with the Lord. Are you in a covenant relationship with God? Have you found grace in the eyes of the Lord as Noah did? The answer is, are you in a covenant relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ? And if you're not, you have the opportunity to do that. Maybe you're here as a Christian, you need to renew your vows. You need to renew your covenant. Learn and apply these lessons we've talked about this morning and have a sense of urgency in doing that as well. And maybe you're going through storms. And I want to tell you, if you're going through storms in life, praise Him in the storm. Look to the rainbow in the storm. Look to the rainbow in the clouds. And remember that God is faithful. That God keeps His promise. Have you found grace in the eyes of the Lord? If you need to respond to that invitation, this invitation is the same. Come, you and all your house, and enter. Ye that labor and are heavy laden, come, and I will give you rest. If you need to respond to that invitation this morning, the Lord invites you to come as we stand and sing.